know, I was very curious. I said, well, what brought you from Tokyo and and Sao Paulo to come to take this class? Were you on vacation? You just thought it would be an interesting thing to do? They said, oh, no, we traveled here specifically for uh, for this. And I said, well, why? You know, I was very curious uh, as to why, why would you travel that far where there are no um, opportunities to do the same in, in, in the local market. And they said, look, this is Napa Valley. This is one of the, the, the greatest wine producing um, uh, areas in, in the world, wine regions in, in the world. Of course, we're going to come here uh, to take, take a wine class. You're listening to Everyday Food and Wine, the show about innovators, creators, and experts in the fields of food and wine. I'm Sarah Faraday, and on today's episode, I sit down with Christian Ogenfuss. Christian is the founder and chief executive officer of Napa Valley Wine Academy. Christian is a passionate wine industry spokesman and educator. He holds his WSET diploma from the London-based Wine and Spirits Education Trust and is an associate member of the Institute of Wine and Spirits. Christian also holds the French Wine Scholar, the Italian Wine Professional, and the American Wine Expert certifications. He brings over 20 years of wine experience in the wine education arena as both a marketer and brand builder for wine brands. Christian is a born entrepreneur and has successfully launched wine-related businesses in Switzerland and traveled extensively to all major wine regions in Europe and North America. Christian, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, well, I'm excited to just speak with you as well. Thanks for having me on, Sarah. Of course. So you're originally from Switzerland. What was it like growing up there and how was the food and wine scene? Uh, yeah, so I, I was uh, born uh, in in Zurich, Switzerland, and lived there uh, a good part of my life. Uh, I was raised uh, half in 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 Switzerland and half in in the U.S. Um, but the food food and wine scene in in Switzerland, you know, is is quite diverse. It's a small country that is bordered by uh, Italy, France, Austria, uh, Germany. Uh, and and Liechtenstein, so it is you know kind of at the the crossroads of a lot of different wine scenes and um, and definitely culinary culinary scenes. So food was always a very important part of my early years, um, and then wine became uh, important. My family's been in the in the wine business in one way or another uh, for three generations, uh, mostly on the retail um, retail side. Although my grandfather did have a, a small vineyard in Switzerland as well, uh, so. You know, wine was always a central part of uh, of life growing growing up. With more than ninety five percent of wine grown in Switzerland, um, it, it's consumed domestically. Correct? Uh, yeah. So in in Switzerland, um, uh, you know, ninety five percent, like like you said, uh, of Swiss wine is is uh, consumed domestically. So there's a huge a huge appetite for it. Uh, you know, in the when I was really young, I remember. Um, you know, sitting at the table with my father and grandfather and them talking about, you know, the protectionist uh, side of the Swiss wine industry for so long time. Um, the Swiss wine industry was propped up by the by the government. Uh, so making imports of uh, white wines from other countries very difficult. Uh, so that forced Swiss consumers to uh, to drink more Swiss wines. Uh, but there are definitely um, some some great wines being made in, in Switzerland today and, and have been uh, historically uh, as well. Uh, specifically, you know, Pinot Noir and um, and other grape varieties. Yeah, so Pinot Noir, or you call it Blauburgunder in Switzerland? That's correct. Yeah, Blauburgunder. Blauburgunder. And in practice, how to say that? It's the most widely planted red grape variety. How would you say it compares to, say, like a red Burgundy or Pinot Noir from Russian River Valley? Yeah, great. Great question. So de- definitely more Burgundian than than Russian River. You know, Russian Rivers tend uh, Pinot Noirs tend to be much much more uh, much richer style, um, much more concentration. Um, you know, Swiss Pinot Noirs from some of the best uh, uh, producers like Gantenbein, who's in uh, the region of Graubünden in in Switzerland, uh, is probably one of the top producers. And his um, Pinot Noirs tend to be very elegant, silky. Uh, with a little bit of a smoky uh, texture, 
uh, to them as well. Um, so they can be quite quite elegant. Um, and, um, you know, if you can find them in the, in the U.S., they retail for about uh, $170 uh, $70 per, per bottle. So they're not inexpensive, uh, but, but absolutely delicious. So among all of your accolades, you're also one of 64 Burgonne wine ambassadors in the world. Is it fair to say that Burgundy is one of your favorite wine regions? Absolutely, you know Burgundy is holds such such a mystique uh, in uh, in the world of wine, and just as you know a um, uh, so multifaceted and so so multi layered, I'm I'm just naturally drawn to it because there's always something more to uh, more to learn from uh, from the region, uh, you know whether it be Pinot Noir or Chardonnay or or the other uh, grape varieties that are grown, Aligoté, for instance, uh, in in Burgundy. Uh, it just presents opportunities to continue to learn and explore. Uh, so I visit, uh, you know, during normal circumstances, visit at least once, uh, once a year. Obviously, this year, I'm, I'm not able to do so because of uh, the travel restrictions um, and the oh. current situation that we're, that we're facing. Um, but every time I go, you know, there's something uh, new to discover, not only uh, from a wine perspective, but from food perspective, cultural perspective, uh, great cheese um, making, uh, uh, you know, Epoise, one of my favorite cheeses uh, is, uh, you know, uh, region of origin is is Burgundy. That's one of my um, favorite cheeses too. I can't get enough of it. I know. Isn't it delicious, rich and, and creamy and aromatic and uh, <laughs> so aromatic. <a> <laughs> <laughs> let it breathe like a fine wine let it breathe uh, absolutely absolutely so you know those, those explorations of, of of finding uh you know the small producers and and um you know it's just a different way of of um you know approaching wine you know it has such a long long history uh an in-depth history um that just makes it fascinating so what exactly is a Burgonde wine ambassador? Can you explain that a little bit to me and why? I mean, obviously you have a, a, an extreme love for Burgundy, which you're speaking to, but what drew you to want to um, I, is explore that more? Well, I think t- intimidation uh, <laughs> was, was the first uh, was the first motivator. I mean, it is when you when you talk to anyone uh you know, in the world of wine, and you mentioned Burgundy, you know, their first reaction always is, oh, my goodness, so complicated. I wish I knew more. I, you know, I don't feel like I really understand Burgundy enough. So that was my main motivation. I said, okay, so how can I understand uh, Burgundy more? How can I immerse myself uh, into it? Um, So I went, uh, you know, exploring uh, as to where I could educate myself further. And, and I came across this program that is offered by, um, uh, the BIVB in in Burgundy, so that's the uh, the bureau that is the the trade is, uh, trade organization that represents uh, the region of Burgundy, the wine growers, the winemakers, and they had a uh, education program uh, that was open uh, to application, and they took uh, ten applications, and they only ran it every three years, and. Um, I put in my application, and lo and behold, I was uh, accepted as as one of the uh, one of the students. So, wow. traveled to to Burgundy for um, a, a week and had a deep dive in um, in all things Burgundy. Uh, met with producers, met with probably one of the foremost, or was instructed by one of the foremost Burgundy experts, um, uh, Jean Pierre Renard, uh, yeah. who is just an absolute. Uh, uh, treasure trove of 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 information uh, both the historic uh, and and from a producer's perspective and stylistic perspective as well um so i had you know growing up in switzerland we would vacation in um in burgundy uh in the summers so i was always familiar with with burgundy and kind of the uh, the landscape and and the uh geography uh, of of the region but this really gave me a new um perspective on it and a much deeper understanding uh, of Burgundy. Um, so it sounds, uh, it sounds like a lot to cover in a week, almost like opening Pandora's it, box. <laughs> it is, you know, it, it is, it is, it's kind of that, like that first sip of, of wine, right? It piques your interest <laughs> and you think, gosh, there's still so much more to, to explore. So, you know, it's really driven me to, 
to read ferociously, research ferociously. Um, I go, as I mentioned to you, um, on a yearly basis uh, back to to Burgundy. I, I lead a trip uh, with students uh, as well. So we, uh, you know, uh, one of the best ways to learn more is to to uh, educate. And I'm continually educating myself on uh, on Burgundy. I'm by no no means uh, what I would consider uh, to be uh, at the expert level yet. That's that's my uh, that's my desire. Uh, but I have met very few true experts uh, in in the regions of Burgundy or the region of Burgundy. Um, well, I- so that that thirst to understand is is still still very strong. Well, I would say being one of only 64 Burgundy wine ambassadors, you you definitely can hold your own in a conversation about it. Yeah, it's 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 fun. Um but but I I like I said, um you know, it's 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 some what it draws me to it is is the fact that I know I'll never um know everything there is to know about uh, about Burgundy. And just when you think you you know it, um you have a good handle on it, things change or you learn something new. Um so that's what really draws me to um, to the region that's and a, its wines. That's amazing. Jumping back to Switzerland for just a minute, mm-hmm. it's it, Switzerland is famous for Chasselas, a white grape. Can you mm-hmm. describe the character of that particular wine? And are there any local dishes that go well with it? I mean, it's not something that we would really see here. So, and I've never had it, so I, I'm intrigued by it. Yeah, it's. I mean, it is ubiquitous in in Switzerland, and from all price points to um, really inexpensive to to really expensive. Um, you know, at its worst, it is a it's a neutral, uh, a, a very neutral white wine uh, with high acidity, uh, and usually bottled at, at the lower end of the price spectrum with a little bit of CO two to give it a little uh, prickle and a little uh, spritz to it to give it uh, freshness. Um, so you know, at, at that price point and that quality level, you know, people are drinking it on a hot summer's day as they're laying down by the lake, um, and just kind of enjoying charcuterie and and uh, simple cheeses and and things like that. But I think once you um, go looking for uh, the higher quality um, uh, examples of of Chasla, you know, there's such a diversity and and really some some unique um, terroirs and, and and climates that. Um, that allow it to express uh, some good complexity and a little bit more depth uh, than people might might expect, and especially around the uh, Lake Geneva uh, area uh, and the uh, the Vaud, um, you know, uh, regions with names like Desolée and and Epes and and Aigle and Calamin and Feshi. Those are all really um, beautiful expressions of of, of Chasla and and what it has to offer. You know, I think historically it's been uh, consumed um, with with cheese dishes. So in in winter fondue, I think if you drink anything other than than chasla um, with with fondue, uh, and you're with Swiss people, you you might be uh, frowned upon, especially if if you uh, if you chose a red wine or something heavier or oaked, um, they would would not. Um, Look kindly on that. Um, one of my second favorite cheeses, or on equal footing, I should say, uh, with with Epoise is Vacherin, and uh, the raw milk version of Vacherin, which is a, a Swiss uh, specialty, and that goes um, fantastic with with Chasla. So it really, uh, it's just as aromatic as as Epoise, uh, creamy, uh, and you really need to let it breathe and 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 ripen to its full potential. Um, and those kind of marriages are just uh, fantastic. Um, Gruyere uh, cheese. Um, so you'll see the common thread here is cheese and chasla. Um, uh, Switzerland is known for those two things. I think chocolate would be the other one, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend pairing chocolate, chocolate with chasla. I think you'd be a little bit disappointed. Um, but then raclette is, is another dish that, um, that goes very uh, well with it. Um, so those two, you know, fondue, raclette, people have heard of. One of my favorite things uh, is uh, is called, uh, and this is going to be a mouthful, it's called kshvelti. And kshvelti is basically uh, boiled potatoes uh, with fresh curdled uh, cream, 
chives, um, and then a selection of local uh, local cheeses. So you have the warm potato, uh, the the really fresh uh, cream, uh, almost like creme fraiche, um, and uh, from the region of Gruyere, uh, a little bit of chives uh, with that, um, and then some um, some local cheeses. And it's just a really simple dish, but delightful. So. You know, long story short, uh, I think Shasla really lends itself to those more simple dishes, um, cheese, cheese focused uh, dishes. And then it's just great, really refreshing on its own. It's a low alcohol wine, uh, typically around 12, uh, 11 and a half to 12 percent alcohol. Um, so uh, in the summertime, just really nice and, and, and refreshing as well. Definitely. You said that your grandparents own a winery, owned a winery as well. Is that one of the varietals that that you had exposure to growing up? Or uh, absolutely, yeah. It was it was one of my grandmother's favorite um, uh, favorite uh, varieties. She was uh, a, a trained chef um, growing up, so she was always um, pairing food and and um, and local local wine um, before it was even really a a thing, I guess, or before I realized it was a thing, you know, at, at age uh, eight, eight to, uh, uh, to 12 years old. Um, but she was always in the kitchen and she was always, always cooking and had a glass of, um, uh, of Chasla, either, you know, that the grapes that were grown in, uh, in vineyards around, uh, my grandfather's property, uh, or that he, he grew himself. Sounds like an amazing childhood memory. I assume that Switzerland. Uh, the, I assume that Switzerland is exposed to more traditional wines from France, Italy, and Germany versus American or New World mm-hmm. wine. So, mm-hmm. with your love of Bordeaux, what what led you to want to move to Napa versus Bordeaux or someplace like Moselle, Germany? Yeah, good, great, great question. So, you know the 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 Swiss, at least you know. In Switzerland, there are several different languages spoken. You have the French part of Switzerland, you have the Italian-speaking uh, part of Switzerland, you have the German-speaking uh, part of, uh, of Switzerland. I grew up in the German-speaking part of Switzerland. And they have a, a really um, strong love and um, uh, adoration for anything Italian, Italian food, Italian culture, Italian wine. So Italian wine was always very important um, in uh, in, in Switzerland and continues, uh, continues to be, um, you know, my father was in the retail, um, wine, wine trade, uh, when I was growing up. So I was lucky enough to go with him on trips to, to Burgundy, to Bordeaux, to all these wonderful, um, wine growing regions at the time. Um, you know, I felt like I was being dragged along uh, and punished, uh, <laughs> that, that I had to visit, visit these places as a child. It was, uh, horrifically boring. <laughs> horrifically boring. Um, I wish I, I would have that opportunity to do it all all over again now that in in my later years. Um, but so, you know, uh, being in the uh, I joined my father in 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 the wine trade um, in the in the late nineties and started to taking taking on a, a wine buying uh, role and. Um, you know, I subscribed to to Wine Spectator magazine, and I would read about Napa Valley. I would read about California, and I just had had this romanticized uh, picture of it. Um, so when the opportunity came up um, to go on a buying trip to uh, to Napa, I, I snapped uh, snapped it up. So this was in '98. Uh, my wife and I, um, you know, got ourselves plane tickets. We got ourselves to uh, to Napa or San Francisco, and then we rented a car, drove to Sonoma, and and uh, to to Napa. And I thought I had um, found paradise, right, Shangri La. Um, it was, you know, if you I don't know if you've ever been to Switzerland, but uh, the nicest time to be in Switzerland is in the summer when when the opportunity for sunshine is a little bit greater. Uh, but it can be quite gray in in the spring and the summer. Uh, and definitely, uh, sorry, in the spring, uh, in the fall, and in the uh, in the winter. Um, so when I came to California, and it was you know emerald um, uh, uh, waters and and crystal clear uh, skies with not not any clouds and warm, where you could uh, you know didn't have to worry about bringing a, a sweater with you wherever you went. I just fell in love, and I thought you know from a um, uh, uh, from a visual standpoint, it was just breathtaking. I mean, you have uh, the Vaca mountain ranges, the the Maya Cam- uh, Maya Camus mountain ranges. They're they're different. So if you look to the east, it looks different than when you look to the west. Um, 
yeah, it was it was everything I I had pictured in my mind and uh, and more. So when I had the opportunity to to um, you know change my career up and and wanted to get uh, a little bit more uh, uh, a deeper perspective in into the wine business and 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 approach it from the producer side, um, I started to look for opportunities for employment in uh, in Napa. And uh, as luck would have it, I I found that opportunity. And uh, my wife and I, I said to my wife, "Hey, I, I have a job that I'm applying to in in Napa. What do you think?" And she, she's American, so we met in college. And uh, she said, "Yeah, if, I think if we move back to to the U.S., the only two places I can think about moving to is either Hawaii or or California. So I'm in. Yeah. Uh, let's do it." And that's how we how we ended up here in, in paradise. It's so beautiful. There's something so romantic about it. And there's this, almost this smell when you get there. It's just like wraps you in a blanket. It's, it's beautiful. It is. It is. I, I, have, I pinch myself every day, you know, wondering uh, and, and thanking uh, my lucky stars that I'm, you know, able to live in such a beautiful place and, uh, you know, hoping that I, I'm not waking up from, from a dream at some point. <laughs> yeah. So, and we'll get into this in just a second, but I'm curious before, so you now, you you founded Napa Valley Wine Academy, but what was your first job that you, you got when that took you to Napa? What was kind of the path that led you to, uh, to found Napa Valley Wine Academy? Yeah. So what brought me to, um, uh, to Napa's, you know, I found a, I did some research. I found uh, a website called winejobs.com and uh, I started to stay up late and, and uh, you know, kind of look through that for opportunities. I knew I wanted to work uh, for um, a producer for a winery um, and I was hoping um, that I could leverage my experience in, in retail and, and marketing uh, in, in that realm. So um, I found a, a, a posting for um, a general manager position at Visatui Winery, uh, which is um, you know very uh, very large, well known uh, direct to consumer uh, winery and located in Saint Helena. And I thought, okay, I'll send off my resume, not expecting much, because here was um, a, a guy you know, applying for a job in California from, from Switzerland. <laughs> so I submitted that. And two days later, I get a, um, a phone call at an off hour. Um, and uh, it was the president of the winery and said, hey, I received your resume. And I was wondering if you could come in for, uh, for an interview. And, you know, I looked at my watch and it's, you know, around 1130 at night. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, I said, you do realize that I am uh, not just right around the corner. I'm in 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 Switzerland, and um, you know California. You know I'm going to have to plan a little bit to get <laughs> get out to California. And he goes, "Oh, okay." Uh, he was a little, you know, I heard some paper rustling, and he look. He was obviously looking to see what the address was, and and realized that. And he said, "Well, can you get here in three days?" Um, so. Uh, you know, I booked I booked a, a, a ticket. was uh, was really expensive. Hopped on a plane from Zurich to San Francisco. Landed in San Francisco. Uh, stayed at a hotel. Rented a car to drive up the valley uh, up to to Napa. And on that day, um, there was a horrific downpour of rain. It was cloudy. It was rainy. Um, and I remember thinking to myself as I was driving up to the wineries, like, "Wow, I think this is a mistake. This place is." You know, I thought it was going to be sunny and beautiful, and here it is raining even harder than it rains in uh, in Switzerland. This was in November, and um, had the interview uh, went well, um, but you know, I was just the weather kept preoccupying me. I was like, "This is not how I remembered it." I couldn't see any of the the mountain ranges. I couldn't see the the hills. I could, you know, only see maybe you know uh, 20, 20 yards uh, in in front of me. Wow, and uh, Went to the hotel room, checked in, um, and uh, you know was was uh, uh, up in in northern part of uh, of Saint Helena, and um, got up the next morning, and I uh, opened the windows and I looked out, and it was just absolutely breathtaking, beautiful. I mean, the cleanest air I'd ever seen, um, and uh, so it was a very good day. Uh, <laughs> the same day they offered me the job, um, and. Um, that's that's what brought me to 
uh, to California. Amazing. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's quite a commitment. So to to fly here in such short notice and then think that, oh, it's pouring rain. This is a big mistake. That's, that, that's a pretty big uh, decision to have to make very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, you know, jet lag throwing throwing jet lag in the mix is is you know gets you off off kilter as well. So yeah. So then, present day, you you founded mm-hmm. the Napa Valley Wine Academy. Does it yep. strictly specialize in Napa wines? And can you talk a little bit about what it is in your vision for for um, being the founder of it? Sure, sure. So, um, well, I'll ask, answer the the first question. You know, it, no, we don't just deal with with the wines of Napa Valley. Um, I know, you know, we're we're Napa Valley Wine Academy, and and oftentimes people think, well, um, perhaps it's just a school that deals with with wines from uh, from Napa. But we deal, we educate uh, on wines from all over the world. Uh, so we have a very rich curriculum. Um, you know, everything from um, how to serve wine, how to taste wine, how wine is made, and uh, like I said, all the regions of uh, of the world. How we got started, what was the impetus for it, um, was, you know, I was uh, working for the Plum Check Group uh, of wineries. I was the director yeah. of marketing for, um, uh, for the three properties, and um, I had uh, just completed my own. Um, uh, educate wine education, um, getting the diploma from the WSET. And uh, a friend of mine who I had studied with called and said, hey, there is a school that um, is looking for instructors uh, on the weekends. Would you be interested? And uh, I said, yeah, let me let me think about it and I'll call you back. So I thought about it. And, and again, my philosophy has always been, you know, if you want to stay on top of um, uh, of wine knowledge, one of the best ways to do do that is by present, you know, being forced to continually research and uh, um, uh, and assimilate knowledge, and and the best way to do that is is teaching. So I th- said, yeah, this would be a great um, a great opportunity. Um, from there, uh, I then thought, you know, uh, there is no school based in uh, in Napa, and it might be a, a great opportunity to be able to to start a school in Napa. So uh, another um, uh, a friend of mine who was studying with me during the same uh, same period, I said to her, yeah, you know, what would you think about starting a, a school in Napa? You know, just on the side, just a, a weekend kind of thing. And, you know, we could earn some money and, and help put our kids through uh, through college when when uh, they go off to, to college. And she said, sure, you know. Um, so we both had full-time, full-time jobs. Uh, we started it, um, and it quickly grew. We were growing, you know. We were offering uh, weekend classes, um, and you know, I think our first class had uh, maybe eight students. And I, we both thought, "Wow, this is this is incredible!" Eight <laughs> students in in one class. Well, over um, a six month period, you know, we started to have twenty twenty five students per um, uh, per class, and. I was uh, at dinner with my wife and I said, you know, if um, it continues like this, we're going to have to make a decision. Either we're going to have to, uh, I'm going to have to stop doing, uh, stop the school and we're just going to have to, uh, to shut it down because it's becoming so busy or I'm going to have to quit my, my day job and, and run this really as a, as a full-time, uh, full-time business. And she said, um, well, why don't we do this? Why don't you keep your your day job? I will quit my job and I will do all the admin um, things that, you know, is taking up a lot of time. Um, and we can see how that goes. Uh, so she did that. She quit and uh, her job and, and did a phenomenal job. And that only exacerbated things. It only grew that much faster. Uh, so a, a good problem to have. Definitely. Uh, so in in November, um, she said, you know what? I cannot do this on my own anymore. <laughs> she says, either either we shut this thing down or you quit your job. And I said, weren't we just here uh, not too, too long ago? Wow. And so I did, I, I did take the leap, I, I, a leap of faith, and um, uh, came on uh, full time. And then it just really started to grow exponentially. Um, and my business partner then quit her job and came on full time. Um, and now, you know, we have, um, here in our headquarters in, uh, in Napa, we have, uh, 12 full-time employees. And then we have about uh, 30, uh, adjunct instructors. Um, uh, and then we have eight locations throughout the, the country. So it's, it's just really, you know, been a, 
uh, a phenomenal growth uh, for us. And, and sometimes it feels like we're just kind of uh, sitting on the mechanical bull trying to hold on uh, <laughs> and not, not being bucked off. But it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. It's incredible. Who were your initial students that you got in those eight? And then what were kind of the demographics of the the people who were signing up for your courses? Was it mostly people in the community or was it you know, people that had a general interest in wanting to learn about wine? You know, th- this is what blew me away. So we, we um, our first class, I think we had, you know, like I said, we had uh, eight students what and was what was the first class? What was it on? It, it was a, a a wine a WSET, so uh, Wine okay. and Spirits Education Trust um, level one class. So a very basic intro intro class. And the first thing that struck me is that uh, out of the eight, um, seven were female, right? And um, you know the wine industry has always been thought of as as this kind of bastion male. of 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 male maledom, if you if you will. Yeah. Um, and um, here were here were uh, uh, seven um, uh, women who had who had signed up who are super passionate and, and and wanted to learn. So that was that you know struck me right away and said, "Wow, this is this is great." Um, of those, they were all in the wine industry uh, uh, as well. So um, you know, initially we started to to promote ourselves uh, for um, folks in the wine industry. I think it was our third class where we um, had a student from uh, Tokyo and we had a student from uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil. So now uh, this was for a level two class, um, WSET. Um, and we said, well, you know, I was very curious. I said, well, what brought you from Tokyo and, and, and Sao Paulo to come to take this class? Were you on vacation? You just thought it would be an interesting thing to do. And they said, oh no, we traveled here specifically for uh, for this. Wow. And I said, well, w- why? You know, I was very curious uh, as to why, why would you travel that far where there are no um, opportunities to do the same in, in, in the local market? And they said, look, this is Napa Valley. This is one of the, the, the greatest wine producing um, uh, areas in, in the world, wine regions in, in the world. Of course, we're going to come here uh, to take, take a wine class. Um, so, that's that's when it really made an impression too that you know um, people would travel uh, from far and wide to to come take take our courses and in the meantime you know over the years we've had uh, people from all uh, from the four corners uh, of the of the world come and and join us um, so it's been really uh, really uh, refreshing and and because of that we've layered on a lot of um, hands on. Uh, educational experiences to our courses, right? So we have uh, a harvest boot camp where we take people out uh, to be able to work in the vineyards and really see what it takes to harvest the vineyard, um, to harvest grapes, uh, what it's like during the winemaking process to um, to crush and ferment grapes. So to give them a real hands-on um, experience, educational experience, um, you know, non-marketing fluff experience about what it takes to make great Napa Valley uh, Napa Valley wines. Um, so we've been really, uh, really fortunate, uh, to have our school be, be based here. What an amazing testament to the value add that people were finding and are finding in, in your classes and the value offering of being able to go out and actually learn how the wine process is made hands-on because so many people Mm -hmm. learn by doing, not by reading. They're going to retain it so much more. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, most people are very confused when you say the, the you know, especially novices, when you say, well, the grapes are crushed or pressed or uh, punched down, they're like, okay, what does that mean? And, and then you spend a lot of time on a whiteboard or showing pictures, and they still have a hard time grasping it. But when you take them uh, to a winery, and you show them that process live, and you not only show that to them, but you let them take part in it, um, they have this aha moment, right? And they're like, wow, I finally understand. I get it. Um, that's a beautiful moment. Uh, and I think that is, uh, we're lucky to be able to to have those opportunities, um, you know, being where we are. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the different educational paths and getting into wine. In my mm-hmm. mind, the two biggest ones are the WSET, which we've been talking about in the quartermaster sommeliers. Can you touch yep. on the differences between those two certifications? Sure, sure. Are those so two maybe, courses of certification? 
Yeah. So, you know, uh, the Court of Master Sommeliers is uh, an organization. They're, they're a testing body um, to, to promote excellence in, um, in, in wine hospitality, if you, if you will. Right. So, and the, when you think of sommelier, you think of, of, of the, the woman or the man in, in, in the restaurant who's responsible for, uh, for the wine list, who's responsible for serving it and, and helping you select, uh, select the wine. So it's very much focused on, on those disciplines, right. Of, of product knowledge, um, of, um, uh, of the the business side of uh, of restaurants of how to deal with people, uh, but it it goes further than that. It's not just wine; they deal with spirits uh, as well, and 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 beer and uh, and cigars have, have historically also been under their 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 charge. Oh, interesting. Um, so um, it is um, you know an educational path that that focuses very much on that on the on premise on the hospitality side. Um, the WSET is a, is a little bit different. It takes a, a little bit more of an academic approach to it and um, focuses very heavily on the theory knowledge, on product knowledge from maybe more the the retail import uh, distribution side of uh, of the business. So the the other um, the business side of uh, of wine, if you uh, if you will, that doesn't mean that um, a WSET education doesn't prepare you for. Uh, for um, you know the life of a wine buyer for a restaurant or as a sommelier, uh, it just takes a little bit different of approach. So a lot of what um, you know the tasting part of of examinations for the court of master sommeliers are all oral examinations. So orally describing the wine and that fosters um, kind of that 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 discipline and that expertise that they would need to have table side to when they're telling uh, a guest what a wine might. Um, be like um, it's done orally um, for the WSET and and the Institute of Masters of Wine. Um, that is a written exercise. So you're describing, you're tasting, um, you're taking tasting notes. Uh, you're using the systematic approach of tasting to evaluate wine, um, and you're looking not so much to to blind uh, blind taste and, and identify the wine, but you're looking to identify its quality level, its price point. Is it correct for, um, for um, you know, the region it comes from? Um, so much more of a, um, uh, again, an academic, uh, academic exercise um, and preparing you for uh, for those other disciplines rather than than hospitality. So what would be some of the things that you look for, for, for example, and I'll ask you about stag sleep in a little bit, but say, for example, mm-hmm. a Napa cab, what is some, like, how would you analyze that? And what are some things that you're looking for? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. So if if you're looking, you know, if you're a wine buyer and you're looking to to buy a uh, Napa Valley cab that is, that is appropriate, you're looking for, for, uh, specific markers and things that that make it uh, correct for for where it comes from, right? And that's uh, richness of uh, of fruit, right? So we we are like I said earlier on in 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 the show, right? Napa is not wanting for sunshine and and warm weather, so the grapes get really nice and and ripe. Um, uh, and and Cabernet is a is a variety that has thick skins, um, and the intensity of the UV light and and sunshine in in Napa causes those skins to get thicker uh, so uh, because of the thick skins you get more uh, pigment extraction so you're looking for a wine that is dark and, and rich uh, that has very good um, ripe fruit characters or right um, uh, blackberry uh, cassis um, and and uh, notes of, uh, of that and then of course through this beautiful glorious sunshine that we have um, those um, Grapes produce a lot of, uh, of of sugar, right? So they they ripen very uh, very well, uh, and that inc- you know increased sugar in in the grapes means increased alcohol in the wine. So you're looking for wines that have uh, a little bit more body and, and and again richness on the palate thanks to to alcohol in the in the high 14s, low 15 um, uh, percent by volume. Um, you're looking for good tannin structure, so ripe tannins. Um, uh, some some good structure, but not aggressive. Um, more more in the silky uh, silky realm. You're looking for acidity that is maybe a little bit dialed back from what you would get in uh, in in Bordeaux. Um, so uh, again, some plushness uh, in in the mouth, and then um, because it has all that uh, all those things going on, it it can 
it can handle the uh, the oak uh, of of winemaking. So usually you layer on um, uh, oak to those wines and giving it further complexity. Um, you know, the oxygenation that happens in the oak barrel um, helps to soften the tannins uh, a little bit as well, but imparts, you know, beautiful um, uh, clove, nutmeg, uh, cinnamon, um, toast element to um, uh, to those wines as, as well. Maybe some tobacco, depending on uh, what type of barrel uh, is is being used. So those are the kind of the hallmarks uh, you um, you look for in in, an, in a Napa wine, and that's what your tasting note should really uh, really reflect. Um, um, so you you kind of take that theory knowledge that you have. Okay, this is what it should look like. This is what I'm tasting. Do they do they um, uh, are they congruent to each other? If they are, well, then you have a good example. If they are not, and there's an element missing, that might not be the best example of, uh, of what you're looking for. So, when you're actually evaluating wines, you have a specific, um, I guess, list of questions in your mind that you are going through for every single wine. It's systematic. It doesn't change per wine. Um, it it changes uh, based on the the, the style of wine. That I might be trying, or that that the taster might be trying, right? So very, very um, infrequently do you have someone plop down a wine in front of you and say, "Okay, guess what it is." You don't know anything about it, um, <laughs> and and blind taste it, right? Uh, oftentimes, that's kind of the parlor trick or or stump the chump uh, kind of exercise. In in a professional uh, setting, you typically know what your you might know know the producer. Um, but you know what you're tasting, uh, and because of that, then you you reach into your into your memory banks and and you're looking for those kind of template uh, of what the wine should should taste uh, taste like and and be representative of, uh, and then you're tasting against that. So in my studies, you know, I always uh, I would write dry tasting notes on on a wine, where someone I would say, okay, name a wine, and I'm going to write the pr- appropriate tasting note to match that wine without ever having taste tasted the wine. Um, and then you just start building up that memory of those, uh, of those wines so that when you taste them or when you do come across them blind, you can quickly, uh, quickly identify them. Interesting. So you're partnered with some really iconic wineries in Napa, such as Stag's mm-hmm. Leap, which helped put Napa on the map in the Judgment of Paris in 1976. I've touched on this in the past, but can you talk about what this did specifically for Napa Cabernet? Sure, sure. So the first thing I just want to point out is the Stag's Leap that I was involved in uh, during my days at, at Treasury Wine Estates um, and and being director of, of of director consumer marketing for Stag's Leap was it was the other Stag's Leap. So I think what most people don't realize is that there's actually two uh, Stag's Leaps. There's Stag's Leap Winery uh, and there's Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, and uh, the the property. Uh, that I was involved in, very historic as as well, uh, was Stag's Leap Winery, which was not involved in in the Paris Paris tasting. That was Stag's Leap Wine Cellar, uh, started by Warren Winarski. Uh, and there's actually a funny story. Those those two, uh, a very acrimonious relationship between the two, as you can imagine, <laughs> white wineries with similar uh, names. Um, so that's you know that's probably worth a show in a, in and of itself. Um, but. Uh, definitely the the Paris you know the 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 Paris tasting that was um, instigated by Stephen Spurrier super important for putting Napa on the map right it went from a place that was pretty obscure and at the time probably had more walnuts and, and prune uh, orchards than it did <laughs> uh, uh, grape um, uh, grapevines really catapulted it into the forefront of um, uh, of wine culture thanks to George Tabor's article on the um, on this on this tasting the Paris tasting um, and you know where where the um, wines of Chateau Montalina uh, Stag's Leap uh, garnered some really uh, some really big awards. Oh, interesting! I'm sure that is uh, kind of an interesting dynamic between the two stag sleeps because, yeah, I don't think that is very widely known. Yeah, it's 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 uh, fascinating, and and it's it's often referred to as the the war of the apostrophes, right? So, uh, for any of you <laughs> listeners, if you're if you really want to go down a rabbit hole, do some research on on Carl Domani and Warren Wernarski's. Um, uh, you know, copyright and and lawsuits uh, back and forth about the the Stag's Leap um, 
Stag's Leap name. What what is interesting is the appellation is also known as Stag's Leap, right? Stag's Leap <laughs> Wine District. So you have um, a wine region uh, and two wineries all sharing the same name. So there uh, there's you know quite a bit of intrigue uh, around that. Wow, which Stag's Leap is older? Um, so Stag's Leap Winery is actually um, uh, an older property. So it is. Um, it, it used to be actually a um, a resort. Um, so the it's an old stone uh, building and it has a, a very long um, history, um, uh, as well as a as a resort, uh, and then as a um, kind of a, a medical institution in the early nineteen. 19- 1900s for people who suffered with tuberculosis. Um, it was a house of ill repute at 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 one point, um, and then uh, during prohibition, kind of laid uh, laid uh, fallow. Um, there was a speakeasy that was run uh, in that in the uh, in the manor house during uh, during prohibition. Um, so it's 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 very. Uh, it's a very storied uh, and historic uh, historic property. It's fascinating. We will definitely have to do an episode on that. So I think that people here of Napa, they tend to picture one place, but there are many different soils, microclimates, and pretty significant temperature differences, such as mm-hmm. like cooler Carneros AVA, and then like much warmer uh, Calistoga region. Can you talk about some of the different AVAs within Napa and the different varietals you might see? Yeah, sure. So, you know, Napa has 16 AVAs, so it is it is quite diverse. Uh, and and um, from a soil perspective, it has over 100 different soil variations, uh, 33 different soil series. Um, and it's super unique in the fact that you can fi- find half of the world's soil orders in Napa Valley, right? So you really? have, um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's an area shaped by, by tectonic activity, right? On the Vaca mountain range, uh, side, uh, where the, um, where the Sierras are, are, are pushing down towards, uh, towards the ocean. Uh, and then you have the ocean rising up, the uh, ocean floor rising up, uh, on the Mayacamas, uh, my Camus side pushing up that that marine sediment. So you just have this this confluence of of all these different uh, different soils. So that makes it quite unique, and that makes it um, an area that is uh, able to grow a, a wide variety of uh, uh, of different grape grapes. And then, as you mentioned, right, you have Carneros down to the southern part where I live, um, and you have um, an area that is uh, typically considered very uh, or cooler part of the the valley. It's like you have. It's like a thirty degree difference, right, between Calistoga yeah. and Carneros. Yeah. So, it, it, especially in the in in the evening, so um, you know, Carneros can get quite quite hot during the day. So, ninety degree temperatures aren't unheard of. But as soon as the sun goes down, uh, or you know, as soon as um, the sun starts to go down around four thirty, you have this wind that moves in from St. Pablo Bay that brings in cold uh, cold air and that comes over from the Petaluma Gap. Um, and temperatures will will quickly drop into the 80s, uh, 70s, and at night you're grabbing that that sweater if you want to sit out with with friends after the sun goes down. You're chilly and and you turn on your propane propane heater. So a lot of diurnal shift in in, in Carneros. Oftentimes people think Carneros is also the the wettest and rainiest part of of Napa. It's actually one of the driest. Uh, Calistoga is, is sees far more rain than. Uh, than than Napa does, uh, but the hardest hottest part of the valley isn't even isn't even um, Calistoga. It's it's Saint Helena, um, and we we often say it's kind of that um, it's the part of the donut. It's the donut hole because um, it's it gets the hottest. It gets about an average temperature of ninety five degrees during the uh, during the summer. Um, Calist- both Calistoga. And Carneros um, have fog that comes in from um, uh, from the ocean. So uh, up through San Pablo Bay or over the Petaluma Gap for Calistoga, uh, in the morning you'll be fog covered. Um, in Calistoga, you have that fog coming in through Knights Valley and the Russian coming up the Russian River in through Knights Valley and dumping into uh, into Calistoga. So in the morning you'll wake up in fog there. But uh, on that same morning, if you're in St. Helena, you'll have blue skies. Um, so the fog will slowly recede in those two areas and the temperatures will start to increase. Um, but what most people don't realize is because of that uh, uniqueness, um, St. Helena is, is one of the har- hottest parts of the, the valley. 
Interesting. I guess because it's just not getting any of that ocean breeze as well. It's, it's not getting that fog. Correct. Yeah. And it's it's pretty protected. You know, the the valley starts to narrow quite a bit uh, at that point, uh, right? You have this very wide mouth um, open um, area between um, uh, uh, down here in, in, in um, Carneros. Um, and then as you drive up valley, you can see the two, the Vaca and the, and the Mycamus mountain range just starting to move towards each other narrowing. And that keeps, uh, helps protect it and keeps some of that heat in there as well. What are, uh, just a couple, just so that people can remember, but what are some of the best varieties, maybe say uh, two or three of the best varietals to get from each place? Because uh, trying to educate on not just you know buying a wine that says it's from Napa County or mm-hmm. anything, but more of a specific area, how would you, how would you recommend that? that purchase be made great yeah so great question i mean you know cab is king in 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 napa but it definitely does better in some areas than than others and and um you know chardonnay is another very important variety for uh for napa but uh sauvignon blanc does well uh merlot right the often uh, uh maligned merlot does does very well as pinot noir but you can find grape varieties as diverse as riesling um in yeah in Napa as well as Rafosco, an Italian variety, or um, uh, so um, Ribola Giala, another Italian uh, variety, a little bit more obscure. But if you're looking for Cabernet, you know Oak um, Oakville is um, uh, Oakville and Rutherford are two of the areas that I, I think do Cabernet exceedingly well. Um, they're not inexpensive, but they they definitely deliver on complexity and concentration and all those things I talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, but there are also other areas that aren't AVAs, right? Um, uh, uh, Oakville and, and Rutherford are both separate AVAs, so American viticultural areas. Um, there is Pritchard Hill, uh, which is um, uh, where you'll find Chapelet, uh, Continuum uh, Estates um, that that does Cabernet really well up on the hillside. Hal Mountain um, has um, expressions of Cabernet that tend to um, to have a little bit more tannin. Uh, to them uh, a little bit more uh, 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 acid, so a little bit more nerve uh, to them. Um, you have Cabernets from Spring Spring Mountain, uh, Diamond Mountain. Uh, so a lot of diversity as far as Cabernet is concerned. So it's not just a one-trick trick pony. Um, Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Noir and Chardonnay tend to do uh, better in cooler, in the cooler areas. So in uh, Calistoga. Uh, uh, sorry, in uh, Carneros, <laughs> uh, uh, Carneros is where those varieties tend to uh, tend to do very uh, very well. Again, because of that uh, diurnal shift um, and the cool air coming uh, coming in, so uh, look for Pinot Noir, Chardonnay from uh, from Carneros. Um, even uh, Coombsville uh, does does very well uh, for for that. Uh, or then in higher elevations, like I mentioned to you, Riesling or Chardonnay uh, from Spring Mountain. Um, are absolutely fantastic uh, examples uh, examples there. Um, but you have some up-and-coming producers and, and some smaller producers really experimenting with different grape varieties um, uh, as well. You know, Napa is one of those um, magical places where you can get just about anything to, to grow, right? You have um, a Mediterranean climate and only 4% of the world has a Mediterranean climate. Um, and Napa is one of those uh, one of those areas. Um, so it just affords um, someone who uh, has the time and the money and the passion to to plant vines in, in the ground. It it affords them a, a, a wonderful opportunity to produce um, some some pretty stunning stunning wines. That's incredible. Can you talk a little bit about the vintages? I mean, there are some some very iconic vintages from from Napa, and then maybe some that you might recommend to to steer clear of, or even not to steer clear of. But can you recommend, like, talk about the iconic vintages and what about that specific vintage? And when I say vintage, to anyone listening, I'm also talking about it's the year. Um, can we talk a little bit about some of those really special vintages in Napa? Sure. So, well, the, the first thing I want to say is, is again, you know, I, like I mentioned just a moment before, you know, Napa is, is, is a place that, um, 
is uh, so special and and has a Mediterranean climate. And, and what that really means for people listening is a Mediterranean climate means that during the summer, you have dry, warm weather with, with no rainfall. Um, your rain comes in in the fall uh, and comes in in, in the early um, or late uh, winter and, and early spring. Uh, so because of that, while the grapes are growing, you just have this idyllic um, weather that makes them um, ripen just perfectly almost uh, year after uh, year after year. So with that, I just wanted to lay the groundwork that vintage variation in Napa, while often discussed to great lengths, um, is less uh, uh, of less importance than in a place uh, that we discussed earlier, and such as Burgundy or or Bordeaux, where you know, in Burgundy or Bordeaux, you might have a hailstorm or you might have rain during the summer. Uh, you might have temperatures that that drop quite a bit um, and where the vines struggle to ripen the grapes. Uh, and therefore, you have a lot of fluctuation from year to year. We don't see that much in, in, in Napa. But having said that, there are definitely vintages that people have talked and written uh, a lot about. And, and um, you know, to tie it all back together, uh, the, the first trip I took out to uh, to Napa was, as I mentioned, in, in 98. Um, the 97 vintage was was uh, written about as, as one of the best uh, vintages ever uh, for, uh, for Napa Valley. And, and a big to-do was made about it. And people went crazy and, and, and bought wines and, and cellared wines. Um, and then 98 came around and, um, you know, the, the wine journalist said, you know, 98 is just not a 97. It's, it's actually, a, a lesser, a lesser of lesser quality. So avoid it and, and concentrate on the 97, uh, vintage. Well, um, you know, 10 years pass, 15 years pass, 20 years pass. And believe it or not, the 98 vintage tastes and performed much better um, over the long haul than the 97 vintage. Wow. And that's just to say that, you know, vintage is the other thing to consider when you're buying a wine um, uh, and um, uh, wanting to consume it early. Vintages play less less of a role, right? Especially in a place like Napa Valley or Sonoma or or some of the other Mediterranean climate regions of the of the world, uh, where they play a, a bigger role is perhaps in if you're someone who is wanting to lay down wines for the long, for the long haul, and there you might want to look for vintages that provide a little bit more acidity or provide a little bit more uh, tannin structure. Those are all things that will help uh, help a wine age uh, and then fruit concentration. So it's a it's a it's um, you know a, a short answer for really a, a, a question that requires a long answer, and that's to say, um, vintages. It depends on on many different facets, but at the end of the day, it, it depends on the consumer and how they like to to enjoy their wines. If they like them fresh and round and juicy and 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 voluptuous, then uh, then they're drinking their wines early, and they should you know they go to the 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 wine shop pick out a great bottle, come home, drink it tonight. That's perfect. If you're looking for wines that will age and become uh, elegant and have what we call tertiary flavors or those flavors and aromas that develop from wines um, as part of the aging process, right, where the, the, uh, the flavors uh, and nuances transform into something, into a third state, uh, if you will, um, then, then it, 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 it's a little bit more important to, to pick the right uh, to pick the right uh, vintage and, and and balance, and those wines typically don't taste as great right off the bat, right? Uh, um, so you're kind of hedging your bets and and looking into the future and saying, okay, it doesn't taste optimum now, but I think if I give it ten or fifteen years, it's going to develop into something really nice. That makes sense. Interesting. All right. So just jumping back in, I know we're running a little short on time now. Um, with everything going on, uh, you know, with COVID, how has this impacted the Napa Wine Napa Wine Academy? And you know, what sort of, I guess, direction are you currently taking with it? Yeah. So, you know, it's it's impacted our business quite a bit. I mean, we we are, you know, um, we went from uh, one day uh, operating our business where we saw a lot of people in in person around the country. Like I said, we have many different locations throughout the country. Um, 
uh, as well as our headquarters here, uh, to you know shutting down our in-person operations and and uh, shifting everything online. We've been working on our online platform and online courses, you know, for the last um, uh, three years uh, now. So um, you know, it wasn't a huge shock uh, shock to us. It accelerated us um, uh, a bit into. Um, uh, developing more classes uh, and transitioning things a little bit faster to to the online environment, um, and that's met with great success. I mean, we've we've um, seen steady enrollment in in online classes. We partner with um, a, a company that allows us to produce wine kits to send out um, with some of our wine classes. Uh, so students, even though they're not joining us in person. Uh, they still have wines delivered to them to to try with wow. us in uh, in a virtual tasting. That's great. Uh, so they're able to, uh, and that's been fantastic, right? The first question that most people say is, "Well, if I learn about wine online, what about tasting the wine?" Um, so we have a, a a solution solution for that. So knock on wood, it's been it's been going really great. We we work with you know some of the brightest um, wine experts minds in uh, in the industry, masters of wine, master sommeliers. Um, that are that develop these courses. We have a full team of instructional designers and uh, and and techies that that program everything um, to, for the online classroom. So uh, we've been very uh, very fortunate, but it's definitely forced us to pivot uh, pivot in a very short amount of uh, amount of time. Wow! Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure short term that's definitely been. A lot of work, but how amazing is it to be able to open up the resources that you have to so many more people and reach so many more people through an online platform in the long run? Yeah, yeah, it's exciting. You know, it's 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 exciting to see how engaged people are. I think, you know, um, I think it's it's a great um, confluence of um, uh, of opportunity. Uh, and what I mean by that is is you know before. Um, people thought, well, you can only really take a wine class in in person, and they they always struggled to see how you could learn about wine in an online environment. Uh, we were always convinced that you could, uh, and that that it was a great way to to learn about wine. But I don't think um, you know a lot of consumers were 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 ready for that, or or students were ready for that. Um, now they've kind of been you know forced uh, into. Uh, learning on online, right? They, they continue to want to learn. So they say, well, maybe this is the time I try to learn online. And what we've seen is that those students are actually having an amazing experience and really uh, engaging with, uh, with the material. So I think long-term we'll see that, that people will finally um, be more open to, uh, to seizing that as an opportunity. You know, it saves them money uh, they don't have to travel to Napa or travel to a location. Uh, they don't have to rent a hotel room. They don't have to rent uh, a rental car, um, um, and and all those things. They get to learn at their their own pace, um, and they have um, access to still have access to you know the the great instructors and 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 great experts that we have on on staff. So I think it's a in the long term it's going to be a, a win for for everyone. Absolutely. I mean, I'm just looking at my situation too. And I think that that's such a great resource for somebody like me. You know, I have three little kids and a husband and I work. And so taking a week or however long out of a schedule to travel to Napa, it might be a little bit difficult, but to be able to have those resources at my fingertips would be, I think that's pretty special. Yeah, that's uh, exactly exactly what what uh, the kind of person that that make is is right for for online education. So I guess that my last question is: Who should attend the Napa Wine Ac- the Napa Valley Wine Academy? Uh, is it mm-hmm. only for professionals within the wine industry, or if someone was really passionate about wine and wanted to learn more, should that person apply? What's what's that process like? Yeah, yeah. So you know for. Uh, for us, we, we say we we are a wine education um, uh, institution that is that is for the curious, uh, the passionate, and the professional, right? And what we mean by that is that we're open to uh, from everyone to the complete wine novice who says, you know, I've heard about wine, or my friends have been talking about wine and they enjoy it. I want to learn more about it. Uh, we have courses for them, right? So for the complete newbie. Um, uh, and then we have courses that are for the enthusiast who says, you know, I've been drinking wine for a while and now I want to dive deeper into the wines of France or Germany or Italy. Uh, we offer courses uh, for, for them. Um, and then, of course, the professional, right? For someone who is taking it for career advancement, 
um, and uh, for career enrichment, um, we have um, we have those courses, the WSET courses, and a lot of the the professional certification uh, courses, or the person looking to to change careers. Right, we see a lot of. Uh, lawyers, doctors, investment bankers who said, hey, I've made my money doing the thing that I wasn't that excited about doing. Now I want to get into the wine business. How do I transfer? You know, how do I do something that I that I love? We uh, for them, we have courses as well. So we really have um, courses for everyone. When we originally started out, we were probably about 80 percent professionals, students. Uh, and I think now we're we're at at parity, right? We're uh, about fifty percent for enthusiasts, fifty percent professionals, um, and we skew uh, our uh, students skew uh, female. Um, uh, about sixty two percent of the students we see are are females, uh, which is really great to see because I think the future of wine uh, is uh, is female in in my opinion. Um, and that. I'm an I'm an I'm an outcast in in the company. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm one of of, of three men um, in, in an office of um, uh, of twelve full time employees. So it is a woman. I always say we are a woman run organization, and I'm lucky to to ha- work with such uh, talented, um, uh, uh, talented, strong business uh, business women. That's incredible. Well, Christian, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you know, you taking that time. I've really learned a lot. I'm sure so many people are curious about the, the courses that you offer. And you know, if you're listening right now and you want to see the amazing courses that are offered, you can visit NapaValleyWineAcademy.com and find out all of the information online. Well, Sarah, it was, it was an absolute pleasure to, uh, to speak with you today. And, and thanks so much for having, having me on. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Talk Bye. to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. For more information on the Napa Valley Wine Academy, you can find a link located in the show notes. Please hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on any future episodes. You can also follow us on Instagram at Everyday Food and Wine, as well as our guest at Napa Valley Wine Academy. You can join us on my personal Instagram weekly for live wine tastings at Sarah underscore Farity, where we taste and rank wines as well as discuss a amazing pairing tips. Please join us for the next episode where I sit down and discuss women in wine with head winemaker Heidi from Mary Edwards Winery.